It's gothic rock. It's goth. Uncovering some of the most amazing stories from some of the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the Wonderful People Podcast and we have uh, myself, Dan Mordup, and the good man, Mr. Phil Jones with us today. Um, Phil, it's been a big week for you and uh, I know you've been super busy this week, so tell me a little bit about what you've been up to. Has been a busy one this week, actually. Uh, I've been chairing the judges for the Daddy Awards for the drum for the last 13 years. And yesterday was was this year's. And, of course, I've never done it virtually. It's always been something very touchy-feely. Judges sat on tables, being able to walk between tables and introduce them. And I was a bit scared, but it was fantastic. I had 40 judges from all over the world logging in, Melbourne, Miami, India, Bulgaria, even Newcastle. And uh, it was just a really interesting day. Tell me about it from your perspective, because you were one of my judges yesterday. I was indeed, yeah. I think a couple of things that really stood out to me about yesterday was, um, firstly, there was still the high number of entries there were. You know, just the great, amazing work done by the industry throughout this, you know, stupid time we find ourselves in. You know, there were some incredible entries, both in volume and in terms of just the quality of entries. And what I loved, I mean, um, about this year's entries were, some of the some of the campaigns that were linked to causes there were lots of really really good stuff and you know no spoilers here but you know some of those campaigns and some of those uh initiatives that were linked to great causes was absolutely fantastic and also how the industry is moving forward you know it's really good to see at the end just some of the the shortlist for the grand prix awards and just how many um yeah, how much the industry is moving forward, both in terms of diversity, in terms of inclusion, in terms of just the scope and breadth of campaigns. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. The judges were great. We had good, although it was on, on, online, as you said, over Zoom, it was great banter. We had a really good time together and uh, really well organised by yourself and the drum. Yeah, great. Well, the, go- the goals at the drum were just absolutely tremendous. So I don't know how they do what they do, to be honest, because they're, they're machines. virtual. They're, they are, they're fantastic. Uh, now, today's guest, Steve Abbott, he's a cracker. I'm really pleased, Dan, that I've got the pleasure of hearing from one of life's interesting people. From his days as lead singer and one of the first goth bands to his current career, producing and managing a very different type of artist. We chat to Abbo, as he likes to call himself, about his colourful life in music and everything in between. Find out a little bit more about two of his great loves, his wife, Keris Matthews, MBE, and a mighty Luton town. <laughs> and we also get the inside scoop on how Elton John came to perform Candle in the Wind at Diana's funeral. So let's introduce Steve. Welcome, Steve. Welcome. Welcome to you too. I want to find out whether something I read about you actually invented the term goth. Yeah. Um, well, that came about because I was in a punk band, UKDK, and, you know, I was, what, 17, 18 uh, when it started out. And whilst I learned a certain amount of independence from my parents, you know, I'd had a few jobs and, and whatever um, uh, to bring my money in, which is, I think is the big, this is what I'm always saying to my children, the minute you start to bring your own cash in, you start to really get independence. And But I never really learned much about hygiene beyond a bit of underarm when you come off the football pitch, you know? So, um, 
very quickly when we started a tour in Europe, we realized, you know, we looked so scruffy after three or four days because you're traveling in a transit van, you know, the, the dressing rooms in those days, pre sort of Vince Power and Mean Fiddler was, you know, no respect for the artists. They were real dumps. So you get really, really dirty. So we started to naturally wear dark clothes, started to wear black clothes because they were even easier. So like black, a black shirt, you know, black trousers, uh, black socks, black shoes, not very colorful, <laughs> but we had, we had multicolored hair, of course. So there's a little bit of color going on. Anyway, and at the time, you know, being a sort of a moody 17, 18 year old, I was reading a lot of a lot of the books you read around that era, Edgar Allan Poe, Herman Hesse, Goethe, um, you know, and, and not really realizing a lot of this was sort of gothic literature. Uh, so a lot of the, you know, I suppose as a band, we were quite driven by um, the world we were living in. You know, we, we abhorred racism. Um, we, I think one of the first punk bands to have a, a member of color, which was crazy. People always seem to mention that. Um, and, you know, we hate homophobia. Um, we had a whole sort of political agenda with a small p. Um, but in the songs, a lot of the punk bands, that the message was just too obvious, you know, like kill the cops, you know, stop the war. We wanted to make it a bit deeper. So the lyrics I was writing were, you know, were basically analogies using a lot of the literature I was reading to uh, to put our opinion forward about the world without it really being an obvious sort of fist in the air song, you know, because that wasn't really the audience we wanted, because uh, around that time, there was a lot of polarization in the audience, a lot of right wing, uh, quite a bit of, you know, anti-Nazi league. And yeah, suddenly you become like a political rally. So we were sort of arty, I suppose. Anyway, so we did an interview with a journalist called Steve Keaton from Sounds. And we did the interview outside a Gothic cathedral in Belgium. But we, we love this cathedral. It's like huge. Um, and uh, anyway, so he was saying to us, like, you know, you, you, you built this own space for yourself in music. You're a punk band, your ethics, but your music sort of belongs in this weird sort of darker space, you know. And, and also all this, your, your fans and, and on stage all seem to be wearing these dark clothes, you know. Aren't you worried you're going to be mistaken as a black shirt fascist movement? So on the spur of the moment, I'm like, oh, my God, that's a, that's a bit of a, a question. And I said, no, actually, it's, it's gothic rock. It's goth. And it just came out. And, and so, you know, you say one line and then the headline of the feature, uh, which I think is online somewhere, where it will be, because it sounds, said gothic rock. And that was the start of it. So there was no, nothing clever about it. It was just an off-the-cuff answer to dodge this accusation of being misunderstood as a fascist band. And you were 18. So who, who were, what was the music scene then? Well, the music scene, well, we still love The Clash. They were probably our favourite band. Um, saw them so many times. And The Jam, I think, you know, well, I still listen to them, which is shocking, you know, because uh, <laughs> music doesn't always... I don't listen to it for nostalgia either. I get a real energy from them, you know. And a lot of the songs, um, you know, to me, you know, White Riot the, by The Clash is really a response to Black Lives Matter. So, you know, whatever, 40 years on, um, sorry, 50 years on, dare I say that. Um, you know, White Riot was all about white people. I want to riot my own because this, this world's unfair, you know, and, and you know, I'm seeing all, all my black brothers sort of rioting and, and, you know, making comments about equality. I want to be part of that because I totally believe them. Um, so a lot of those lyrics are very, very much entwined in, in the world we're living in now. Um, another one, a great Paul Weller song, uh, Thick as Thieves, about him growing up with his friends and, 
um, you know, at school and you go out and you have all these adventures as, as young teenagers and then slowly you start to drift apart, you know. Um, you're no longer as thick as thieves, but you still got that experience in you which binds you with people forever. Yeah. You know, and I still go to my local pub, Alfie's in Luton. Alfie was in my class at school. He signed for Walls, but discovered drink, so he never made it. Um, I still go in that pub, and I'm seeing people now, you know, with teeth missing, you know, no hair, um, some of them in very smart suits, because a lot of them became builders and um, a lot of people in, in that sort of world, so they made a lot of quick cash. We've still got so much in common. And I've said it a couple of times to a couple of kids in there. Do you remember at school when you headbutted me for no reason? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and now, you know, we're still sort of thick as thieves. You know, they do anything for you. Time has sort of become the healer of the things that would have separated you back in the day, but you're from the same place and you could never take that away. Yeah, I mean, really interesting. I mean, you've mentioned, Steve, you mentioned a couple of times the, the whole um, just issue and topic of race and equality and, and, and just how, how sort of... Um, how important it's been throughout your career, you know, not trying to just, you know, like you said, political with a small p, but I know that you've obviously faced quite a lot of uh, resistance from that, you know, both in the US and UK and Europe. And I mean, do you want to just unpack that? Because obviously, you know, we're, we live in a time where we have, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, but as you said, you've been dealing with this for many, many years now. So do you want to unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I say dealing with it, obviously I don't, you know, I hate it when people say, oh, you know, I don't see colour, like what a ridiculous state. If you don't see it, you don't see the problem. And I grew up, we didn't see the problem because Luton was, and as it is now, especially a very multicultural town, you know? And um, I don't remember growing up a, 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 an incident, but again, I'm not of colour. So I'm sure my friends who I grew up with had plenty of them. It was more institutional racism in those days, you know? Um, incredible how the police got away with it. Uh, I mean, I grew up absolutely despising the police. <laughs> I can't, sounds awful now, but uh, we really hated them because we saw the discrimination and the, and the power they had, you know, whether it's on the street, whether it's, you know, coming out of a concert, whether it's a football match, um, you know, and I've always had zero tolerance for it, as of all my friends. So it wasn't like we stood out. We just, we really noticed it when we came to London because when I was about 12, 13, 14, we used to come down to London mainly to buy records. Um, we used to have a few stops, Daddy Calls in the West End, a reggae shop, and then place Peckins in Askew Road in Acton. And we'd stand in these shops all day long. There'd be six or seven of us. We'd perhaps buy one single. But it was sort of a community. The guys that run the shop, Peckins himself, I don't know how he put up with it, because they had all these kids in there, they listened to music, and it'd probably sell like half a dozen records. But it was like a community uh, magnet. Then you'd walk across the road into a cafe, and they'd shoo you away. And it's like, well, what's wrong? We've got money, you know, we're, we're working class kids, but we've got money. And then you realise it was just, you know, people were living in these sort of white British bubbles. The only place where we really felt at home was around Port Villa Road, uh, Labrador Grove area. Um, and this is where I live now. I've been living here 15 years, you know, but I've been here since sort of 12 or 13. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's an area that uh, obviously post the Grenfell disaster, uh, the community got even tighter, but, you know, people here seem to be very open to celebrating, you know, our cultural differences, whether it be rest restaurants of all from Ethiopian to Turkish to Spanish. Um, they open up around there. They're always busy, you know, um, and and it's, you know, children go to local schools here, which do a great job in in um, celebrating different cultures. And, um, you know, one thing I do like living about in London uh, compared to having lived in New York, Paris and Berlin over the years 
is that London, you know, somehow gets it right in so many ways in how it's so welcoming of other, not, not just people, but what comes with them, what they bring. Um, and they seem to sort of, and then we have that, you know, the interesting uh, synergy, like I work in jazz in, in London and, you know, um, black music in Britain has always very much come from the Caribbean, particularly Jamaica. But a lot of the younger artists I work with now, it's Zimbabwe or, you know, Sierra Leone or, or Ghana that they, or, or Nigeria, especially where they're getting their musical influence from. And that can only really happen in London. You know, it's people say it happens in Paris. It doesn't. In Paris, all of those different heritage groups are separated, you know, economically, uh, geographically, and it doesn't mix. And we get it so well here. So to answer the question, <laughs> is, uh, the only reason I was really interested in it, and it's still something that drives me to, to want to change things, is the fact that, you know, I saw it firsthand, but it was my friends who suffered it, not me. You know, and, and when we were in the band, uh, like I said, we were one of the first groups to have a member of colour, which we didn't even think about. You know, we were we were very outspoken about our views on, um, you know, on, on equality and stuff. And this is back in the 70s where, you know, a punch could silence you or a kick or five or six people with fists and, and boots could silence you quite easily. So it was, you know, it was a, it's a continual um, game of trying to avoid right-wing groups. When I say right-wing groups, there's a national front, uh, which we were on their front page for a long time as one of the most hated uh, groups that are believing. But it's also individuals. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of individuals that held these views because they were perpetuated on TV, um, Love Thy Neighbour and programmes like that. You know, even my dad said, this is awful, this programme. Just, we just didn't find it funny. Um, but it was very much the humour of the time. And, yeah. and because of that, it was acceptable to everybody, you know. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the friends I had, they just had to sort of grin and bear it because there was no way they could, there was no sort of way to gather people on social media now to change the world. You'd have to, you know, need a rally of 10 or 15,000 people in the centre of, of London to, to even consider a politician, you know, thinking about this should be on their agenda, you know. This was both sides of the pond, wasn't it, for you, particularly in, in the band UK Decay? Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we um, when we went to America, we toured on the West Coast with a group called the Dead Kennedys, and we played with our Black Flag, um, Search Circle Jerks, DOA, all these hardcore American punk bands. And apart from the Dead Kennedys, they were all singing about getting off their head, driving fast cars, picking up girls. You know, uh, it was, we just had such a different culture. I would say very little change with America, to be honest, because <laughs> I still find that when I go over there, if you stand in a rest, a bar or anywhere, that's the main conversation still. Um, so, you know, we, we sort of went out, we spouted our views, and we hit San Francisco, then went to LA. By the time we got back to San Francisco, like a week later, um, a couple of the fanzines have sort of, again, featured us as like enemies of the people type of thing. It was, it's very weird. Um, and what really touched me was, and this was a big eye-opener, um, we played the Mahoboy Gardens, which is a venue, um, it's a bit like the Roxy or the Vortex in London. It's a famous punk venue in San Francisco. So we played there supporting the Dead Kennedys. You got to imagine we're probably about 19, 20 years old, and there was a huge candlelit march come down the street after the gig, and I couldn't work out because it had milk everywhere. It's milk, 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 and a picture of, of a guy with a tash. I'm like, what's this all about? Anyway, I asked Jello Biafra, the singer of the Kennedy, told me about this mayor that had Harvey Milk that had been murdered by a sort of a right wing religious fanatic, 
uh, I think in those days they just called him a Catholic, um, because he was a gay mayor. And I'm like, God, does this really exist? And so we looked into it, but without the resource of the internet, it took us three or four weeks on the road, meeting a lot of similarly minded people that told us the story of, of milk. And at that time, you would never imagine uh, any city in London having a gay mayor. It just, or, or not an openly gay mayor. They may well have been. Obviously, a lot of politicians sort of hit it. Um, and that was, so that was another thing we picked up on, you know, homophobia. Um, and it was, you know, it wasn't from anyone in the band's experience. It's just seeing something that we just couldn't understand, you know. How can you, how can somebody be killed for being gay, let alone a person? I mean, the story's great. I don't know if you know the Harvey Milk story, but he became mayor of, of San Francisco. He failed once when he went back and applied. His main theme was dog shit. You know, San Francisco is a dog, livers, dog lover's town. When you walk around San Francisco, there's dog shit everywhere. So I'm the mayor. I'm going to clean this up. And he got in. It was brilliant. <laughs> there's a great film, actually, a great documentary. Uh, Sean Penn plays him in the film. And they're both brilliant. And it's, you know, now, of course, we accept that, that, that someone can, can um, choose their own uh, sexual preferences and, and take a position of, of influence and power. But I think there's so many analogies in that era um, and milk being, being one that now we there's still a lot of things that we don't accept that we just got to get on with, you know. What was and, the award? Sort of welcome, actually. What was the award that you received over in the states that was involved with black culture? That that's an embarrassing one. This is when I was at V2 Records in New York. I moved to New York again. I've lived in New York twice uh, in the early nineties and again around ninety eight to two thousand three. Um, I was given, nominated for an award for uh, black advancement in America. And, uh, you know, I got a letter through and I knew my staff were behind it that I worked with. You know, I had a great staff there, brilliant people. And we'd had a lot of incidents of, of racism there. Incredible. And I will say, you know, I was working for Richard Branson at the time and he was so supportive. I know he gets bad press. When I told him what was going on, he came into the office and made a speech about, you know, how everybody's given a fair chance and they can't, can't be selective in choosing who works for the company. He wants as broad a, um, as broad a group as possible heritage-wise. He was brilliant. Anyway, so I was invited to go to Memphis. So I went, I went to Memphis and um, I'd been to Memphis the year before to see this, uh, you know, uh, on Martin Luther King Day because it's a holiday there. It's also my birthday. So I went down there and had a good look around Memphis. Um, so I went the next year to pick up this award and there's about 100 people got it. And as soon as I got there and we started talking about it, because my name was Abo, I realized that they thought I was of color. They thought I was somewhere in Africa, probably Nigeria, because I've met a couple of Abos from Nigeria, surnames. So it was quite awkward. So I was going to meet Coretta King to get this lovely signed book. And uh, I was a total phony because it was all about black advancement, as in people of color. It wasn't about people that, you know, sort of had any role or support in that role. <laughs> so I didn't really know what to say. Um, there were three white people amongst the hundred um, that were there for the award, and I never got to meet the other two. I, I'd love to meet them in a bar somewhere in America. Hey, ain't you that guy I saw in Memphis in 2001? Just to see if they were mistakes as well. Because one of them's surname was Abby, uh, Adeboya, which obviously, you know, famous footballer yeah. so I guess they might have thought he was as well you know but I, so I felt a real phony but I was really I was really pleased because I got to go inside the Ebenezer Chapel uh, which is uh, Martin Luther King's 
chapel there uh, by what is now the Martin Luther King Center for a gospel. I love gospel music, and it's incredible, incredible. Um, you know, two-hour two service, um, full-on, great singers. Um, I mean, it was one of the best musical experiences of my life. I know it was a gone experience, but the music was just phenomenal. And you can still go there. It's a tourist destination. So if you can get to Memphis, go down to the Ebenezer Chapel when they've got service on. It's absolutely mind-numbingly brilliant. Steve, I mean, we, you've got some brilliant, brilliant stories. And you've met, I mean, just some of the names you've even mentioned, you know, in the last few minutes have been incredible. But if you could be stuck in a lift with one person, who mm. would it be and why? You know, I, yeah, um, I'm not a big fan of confined spaces. So, I mean, Martin Luther King was a cool dude. I mean, he, you know, everything about him, knowing that he could be killed at any point. And there's a, there's a BBC programme called Close Up which is on BBC iPlayer. And it's him being interviewed about four months before he was killed. And they ask him, you know, what's it like knowing that all these people hate you and you could be killed? And he just gives the most articulate answer, which I won't, I won't, I'm trying to encourage people to watch it. So he'd be very calm to have in the lift. Although I think I'd have to choose Mickey Harford, otherwise we'd put the head on him. And his, his jokes I've heard a hundred times, but I still love them. And, and, and obviously Phil knows Mick. Um, he's a legend at Luton, but... He's such a great, great chap. And, and there's something about him. He's so warm and, and positive. Uh, even under ad adversity, I mean, football adversity, he's always cool and calm. And, you know, I'm still hearing so many stories about him as a footballer. Um, and they all end up with someone, um, you know, being nudged or, or crippled on the spot or, I don't know, they, they all sound quite violent. But Mix doesn't seem like that. He seems such a genuine, well, he's not genuine, funny guy. You've opened up the Luton Town football subject because like, you've got to you've got to spend a little bit of time on Luton. What what is the love yeah. of Luton, and have you got the freedom of Luton as well? Or? No, no, but it's a good idea, Phil. Perhaps you can send it. <laughs> the mayor the mayor left in bad circumstances the other week, and I do have a lot of connections there in the um, Pakistani community because I went to a karate, Pakistani karate club. I had a lot of friends um, uh, that. that uh, lived in Berry Park and uh, I love I love the food as well um, so yeah so when the mayor went the other week uh, for attending a, 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 a non-friendly Covid party I did get a lot of press uh, about standing for the mayor which I would love to have done I was officially at the card of the cultural ambassador for Luton and my role was literally just trying to you know put right the fact that you know Luton is always voted the worst town in Britain or Slough but it has it, over a hundred languages spoken there, you know, and there's so much cultural about it, but it is, you know, it's, it suffers because it's got an airport. So it's a first entry point for a lot of people coming into Britain to get work, wanting to live the dream. And the reality, there isn't any work. And one of the things that gets me is, you know, to take an example of uh, what Pakistani friends grew up with, you know, when they came from Pakistan, their fathers were, were given driving lessons. They were given decent places to live with a, with a garden at least or or with a park you know they, they were given edu kids were given education you know crash course in English and you know it's it, it sort of obviously everyone's talking about race at the moment before that of course it was all about immigration and you know I, I think it's it's such a complex question because we you know we, we need to help the people that come in the country you can't just expect someone to come in a competitive country like this and find their feet, especially when it's a single male and they don't have their families with them. And Luton has, has suffered a little bit for that because it, it's the sort of, 
you know, I suppose in Star Trek, it's the landing port where you get zoomed into, you know. But you might have a few phone numbers, but that's it. Um, so it does, it has become a town that sort of gets bad press. There's always something bad about Luton. But being being from, from there and, and, you know, the community and everything, um, you know, always have hope because the culture there is so wide ranging and people are so accepting of it. I mean, there is a small group called the EDL, of course, which I don't get on with, and that's everybody knows that. Um, but most people are pretty welcoming. And, you know, it's, I'd hope in like, given the gestation period in the next few years with a football club in the Premier League in the next couple of years, and, you know, the whole, um, the, the whole sort of rehousing and, and all the stuff that is going on there, you know, uh, I hope it will become seen as a cultural centre rather than a place of negativity. I've got a couple of questions. Of course, of this calling part, apart from Jeff Rotal, who were from Luton, and Paul Young, is the football club. And I've loved the football club since I went when I was four with my dad. Um, he, uh, we won 2-1. Uh, he stood up to cheer. He'd just come out of his national service. He had his D-Bob Mac on. And he got his Mac caught in the seat. So his Mac ripped when we stood up. So I laughed like a drain. I got a clout. And I don't remember much of the second half. So I had tears in my eyes. But it was... Um, it was one of the most life-changing experiences being taken to Kenilworth Road because, you know, it's, it's in you. You, you know, I, obviously, I live in London. My kids go to local schools. They wear Luton shirts and, you know, everyone's Chelsea, Man United, not even QPR around here. Um, and Man City now, of course, and Liverpool. But it's, it's something that you're given that if you really take it into your heart, you, no one can take it away, whatever happens. You know, I, I still go to pretty much every match, you know, got four season tickets, um, you know, birthdays. My son, youngest son gets to meet the team and read the, 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 the team sheet out, all that stuff. You know, it's such a great, it was it voted family club last year uh, in the, by the EFL. Fantastic. Anyway, so yeah, it's, it's a love affair that will never end. Is this the inspiration behind the, the single uh, wonderful, A Wonderful Town? Wonderful Town, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you became reformed. Um, to do a benefit single for Luton Food Bank. Not that the band are popular enough to probably fund it. I think we raised about six, seven grand. Um, and I wrote a song called Wonderful Town. And it's pretty much, you know, uh, we did Hatters Hatters, which was a Baron Knight's hit in the 70s. And we did Wonderful Town, which was just my sort of paying to, to Luton Town, you know, um, just to say, look, this is a wonderful town. You've just mentioned Luton Town, the Premier League, in the same, in the same sentence. Well, you say that, you say that, but look, you know, we just beat Derby at the weekend True. and the Derby fans are all over social media. If we can't beat a club like Luton, what are we going to do, you know? But but Luton have won nine of the last 14 games, you know? Okay. Beat Swansea away, we beat Reading away in the week. Um, obviously, we're going to take Man United tomorrow in the Carabao <laughs> Cup. Um, <laughs> have a word for them, if you like. So we, we have to have optimism because it's, you know, we don't have the money. Um, you know, it's a club that doesn't support betting. It's got very high ideals. You know, so we're playing Derby. have got, you know, Bet32 or something on their shirt. Betting's banned from Luton. Don't do it. You know, we will never have betting sponsorship unless it's forced on us by the, you know, the EFL and stuff or the, the, the notice boards around the advert boards around the pitch. There's something about, you know, um, Gary Sweet and Wilco and Mick Harford and Nathan Jones, who he, he tried to leave us, but he boomeranged back, thank God. Um, in fact, I was on text with him uh, in lockdown and I said, what are you up to? And he said, I've got another job, but I can't tell you what it is. I had no idea he's come back to Luton. No idea until his face popped up on the Zoom to say, I'm back at Luton, you know. Oh, wonderful. And, you know, we were bottom, bottom of the league at that point uh, going into lockdown. And we ended up staying up and now we're, 
second, I think, in the, in the, in the championship after two Lions. games. Yeah, the derby win was great. Well done. Yeah, yeah. We beat them last year, you know, 2-1 as well. You know, it's um, Rooney was in defence. He was last man at the weekend. So, yeah, so I think, you know, if you talk anyone that's a Luton fan, they understand that this can be done without, you know, the big spending, you know, without the huge infrastructure of sponsorships from things that we really shouldn't be taking sponsorship from. But the most important thing, the club is owned by fans. And... When I talk to all my other friends, you know, and I, I grew up as a, my dad was a West Ham fan and Luton. So, you know, I look at West Ham now and, and I have a, a lot of love for West Ham, but I just don't want to go. I don't want to go. The ownership, you know, it, it's like, and, and all the football fans I know to, to a fault, when I talk to them about the ownership of Luton and when they come up and spend a day at a match, the club that they love to hate suddenly becomes, oh my God, I wish we could have this passion running our club, you know, mm-hmm. and this sort of, welcoming um, 360 degrees view of what football should be in our society, not just what's on the pitch, even though we're playing great, but all the other stuff around it, you know. You know, we have a workers' club built into the ground. Footballing uh, singer, uh, Elton John, Watford fan. Uh, did, you, did you play a part in getting Elton to do the candles? Oh, you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Watford. You're not allowed to mention Watford alongside Luton. No. Yeah, I, I don't wish them anything bad off the football field, but on the football field, yeah, I'm not a big fan of you. Did you play a part with Elton John with the candles in the wind for Lady Di? Oh, yeah. Well, that, that was a hard one because I was managing and producer of Westminster Abbey Choir at the time and Diana died. And so I spoke to Martin Neary, the master of choristers there and the organist, um, on the Sunday morning because she died, the crash was very early. They pronounced it late, late in the morning. So we had a quick call about, you know, is the funeral coming to Westminster Abbey? Now, because she wasn't actually a royal figure, it should have gone to St Paul's. So we didn't really feel the pressure. But during the day, the public sentiment built so great. The palace was basically forced into making it a, a, a royal uh, service. So it came to the Abbey. So... We were talking about the programme on the Sunday evening and Martin came up with the idea of John Tavner's song for Athene, which was brilliant because that had been written, John had, had been commissioned to write that for a young Greek girl that died in a bicycle accident. I think she was 16 or 17. And so it had a sort of relevance, but I don't remember in the funeral, it's that moment when the cortege took the uh, coffin to the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior and just stopped. Uh, it was a beautiful moment. But... I rang Martin about five o'clock in the morning on the Monday morning and said, you know what? I think it would be great to have something that we knew that she really liked. So, you know, a George Michael or a Elton John or, um, you know, and George Michael and Elton John are from Watford. So that's a big concession for me to make, even at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Both of them from Watford. I would try to get Jeffro Tower, Paul Young in there, but I don't think it would have worked. Or UK, UK. But um, anyway, so... We put the service together, Martin picked Verdi Requiem, which is brilliant. Um, and I said, it's either got to be your song or Candle in the Wind. So I rang up John Kennedy, who was head of Polygram Music at the time, which was Elton's label, and said, look, we've got this idea. Nobody knows about it. We haven't told anybody. But either George Michael or Elton John sing at the funeral. I think probably Candle in the Wind or your song would work. The Candle in the Wind, the lyrics would have to be changed. So within about 20 minutes, um, Branson called me with um, Elton John's number 
So he said, call him in half an hour. So I called him. He was in his car phone. I told him that, you know, we're planning the service and, um, you know, we, we quite like the idea of you doing your song, preferably Candle in the Wind, but you need to change the lyrics because obviously you can't have Marilyn found in the nude. It just wouldn't work. Anyway, he was like, oh, no way. I'm not asking Bernie to change that. No way, no way. I'm not asking, you know, who are you anyway type of thing. I said, okay, no problem. But thought I'd ask you, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give Andy Stevens a call. Now, Andy Stevens, so the phone went down. Andy Stevens was George Michael's manager. So I didn't even have his number at the time. This is a bit of a loop in education, isn't it? Um, so, but the wind-up worked. So I'm trying to get hold of Andy Stevens, who it turns out was on holiday. Elton run me back. So I've spoken to Bernie. He's willing to do it. And I said, well, we need it. The, the music's being presented to the palace on the Tuesday morning. So we need it by tomorrow. And Bernie lives in LA. So I went into to work at the office of Virgin Office in Holland Park at the time. And the facts had come through overnight from Bernie with the, the lyrics, you know, and it's like, yeah, they look quite bland without the music, if you think of by English Rose and everything, but it sort of worked. So I rushed off to Martin Neary. He then had a meeting at the palace to present the music and the palace knocked it back. We don't want pop songs. This is a royal wedding. Actually, you'll get a bit of a scoop on this story. Um, so Martin came back and said, look, they, they just they are not going to take it. We're like, oh, what a shame, because we thought it would really connect with the nation to have, you know, Elton or George Michael singing there. We still hadn't heard from George Michael at the time anyway, because uh, they were in his away. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. I went out for a drink that night, um, Housing Hotel, with someone called Jackie McQuillan, who was head of press at Virgin. And I told her the story. We had a few drinks. She said, I've got an idea. So she rung a friend of hers at the Sun and said, do you realise Elton John's being pitched to sing at the funeral? The next morning on the headline of the Sun was Elton to sing at Royal Funeral. At that point, Buckingham Palace, had to, they just had to change their mind. So they acquiesced and he got to sing at the funeral. Wow. So it was quite a moment because, um, you know, we knew everyone was going to be there. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it was it was awkward because we were very aware it could get a very negative reaction. On the day, of course, it went down incredibly well. At the same time as this, uh, I'd been talking to Mish Rea, the lawyers who represented Dai, and one thing became apparent was that her charities like Centrepoint and the Landmine Charities that they were all um, basically going to disappear because her patronage was everything to them. So um, I decided to uh, I talked to talk to, to Branson and, and I spoke to him about doing a compilation record of you know every big group offers a track. This would work for Live so well, of course, you know everyone gives a track and all the money goes to charity. But actually, all the money goes to charity within about a day because Richard knew everyone. You know, I had Roger Taylor calling. I was flying to America to make a track with Aretha, Brian Ferry cut a track, Annie Lennox, um, Leslie Garrett. It, it was it came together in about two uh, week and a half. This whole record, and of course the the key track was going to be "Candle in the Wind" because we knew if it's performed at the service, everyone's going to rush out, want to rush out and get it. Anyway, so when the service finished, um, uh, about an hour later, I was home. About an hour later, Martin Neary ran me. And I said, oh, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Elton, what, what a great reaction. Because Martin had been conducting everything. So he was in the middle of the funeral, you know, conducting the choir and play. And he said, well, you know what, Abbo? Um, uh, Elton's just he said he's going to a studio with, with the guy Martin George. I'm like, 
Turn to the studio, but we're recording Hand in the Wind next week for this compilation. We've held that compilation up for this track, you know. Anyway, put the phone down. Then about half an hour later, I thought, oh, my God, Martin George. He means George Martin. <laughs> the Beatles. So, so I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to record it. So I rang John Kennedy. You couldn't get hold of him. Obviously, it was a, a Sunday. Um, and then Monday morning, it became apparent that Elton had gone and recorded the track himself to put out as a single, which was... We'd all agreed it was going on the album. It wasn't conditionally sang at the funeral because it wasn't a funeral about making conditions and deals. This track was going to really lift the album to a place that, you know, even with Queen and everyone on it, it was wouldn't get to without the actual the track that everyone connected with around the world. So, of course, next thing we find out that he's put out as a single and he's put one of his own tracks on the B-side. So, hold on a minute. This is this isn't what it's about. Whilst the A-side money went to the charity, I don't know about the B-side money. That's still a question no one's answered. I mean, our album sold, I think, about 19, 20 million. But we'd have had that track on it. It would have sold 40 million. And, of course, the profit from an album is way more than a single. But obviously, Elton saw the chance for himself, you know, either very smart or very duplicitous, that this was going to be his big calling card. It's about him, not about raising the money. Anyway. That's, that, that's in, that story, I think, is in Martin Neary's biography, which isn't out yet. But we haven't told that story to anyone. Branson knew it, and Branson rang Elton up and said, you just can't do this. And Elton said, get lost. And then Elton rang the son to slag off Branson. It was a very, it was a very poor, I thought it was a very poor um, judgment on his behalf, even though he ended up getting a knighthood out of it. Because at the end of the day, it deprived the charities from a lot of money. Yeah. Wow. And the single raised a lot of money. But if it had been on the album, it raised infinitely more. Because the single would be like a pound or single profit. The album would be like £10 profit. Anyway, that's quite a long story, but that's how it happened. What what a brilliant story. And ultimately, let's blame Watford Town FC. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, yeah, so uh, it's all to do with Watford. Steve, (laughs) two two questions, both family-related. The second of the two is going to be about your holiday last year. Which uh, your new your new career as a mountain? Oh, gotcha, yeah, yeah. But, but, but the first question is um, just to proceed. That is your your marriage to Keris. Uh, yeah. I believe that your the introduction of you and Keris. Uh, tell us that story because that was quite yeah, that was a funny one. Um, well, I wish actually I would have had her in the lift, but I think she's bored of me at this point, so I, I, I saved her <laughs> the, the one person in the lift. Um, yeah, so we'd, um, at V2, the Virgin Lady would sign Tom Jones, and we were working on this duets record, Reload. Um, I was in New York, and I, ca- I, was fly- I was working in New York at that point, basically. I was flying back to Britain because they were shooting the video, some of the videos for the record. Just before I got on the plane, I was given a Blackberry. Never seen one before. Verizon Blackberry. I ordered it, got it. So on the plane home, I'm reading, reading it, all the instructions in the box. I got back to where the video was being made and there was a pub across the road. I'm like, when you live abroad, a pub is like this big beacon, sort of, yeah, come in, come in. You can't, you can't walk past the first pub. So I went in across, across the road and um, got the Blackberry working and suddenly all my email were coming through. And it's like the idea of being able to be on a beach or anywhere and work was still alien in those days. You know, you couldn't, you just had to be in an office basically all day. So, yeah, so I was thrilled. So, anyway, I finally went across after two or three pints and went across, and I missed Keris. She was doing Baby It's Cold Outside video. 
But I, I met Mark and Tom, and they're like, oh, boy, oh, you're you know, great singer today, Keris Matthews. Now, I didn't really know Catatonia because I lived in New York. So that was in the back of my mind. And then, anyway, years later, um, I've got my Ali Jones, who, you know, the Ali Jones songs of praise, Ali Jones, who's a big Arsenal fan. And, and uh, you know, used to, we were in the same world of TV and uh, music. So I saw him a lot. So whenever he fired a manager, I always ended up managing for a few months, you know, or a year or whatever. So I was managing at the time, and he had a duet on his record. And um, the chap at Decker, Tom Lewis, suggested Keris did the duet. So we recorded, she, she would live in America at the time, and she recorded the duet there. So I didn't actually meet her. So we ended up with this duet. But she came back, and she was going to do a Jonathan Ross interview with Alice. And, and I just, as you would do, I rang to check how you're doing, what's going on. I've just arrived. I've left my computer lead behind. So I went, I went to the West End, bought a computer lead, and dropped it at a hotel. Typical manager sort of instinct. So when I saw her the next day, she was like, oh, thanks for the lead. Was that you? Brilliant, blah. And we just got on really well. And I must say, she walked in the room, and it, it was, talk about the room lighting up. This is a BBC studio at 10 o'clock in the morning in the Portland Place. Fair enough. She looked great. So anyways, then, then roll on a few weeks and we do a few live TVs with her and everything and I'm starting getting sort of close to her. So she asked me about managing her. She didn't have a manager. So I started managing her, which is no problem. Um, and that went on for a while. And we just found out, you know, when you have so much in common, it's one thing. But when you have in common the things you don't like, like baby on board signs, small things that like both of you are like, I can't stand baby was I can't stand it either. We just... It was sort of, it was meant to be. Anyway, we, we went out to, to an award ceremony and we went out with, with Tom Jones and, and uh, uh, Mark, his, his son, stroke manager afterwards. And we're, I took him to Ronnie Scott. And um, anyway, Keris went to the toilet. Tom and Mark were winding up saying, oh, I think, I think she's got something for you, you know? I'm like, nah, no way. Yeah, I think she has, you know? I'm like, oh, oh. Well, anyway. I went to the toilet. They said exactly the same to her. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was so, so, uh, uh, you know, almost infant school, uh, uh, you know, the way they did it. Um, but it worked. And, and we're like, and it changed. So we had a kiss, an innocent kiss at the end of the night. And it was on my mind for, for, for a long while. It's on her mind for, for quite a while. Um, but, but my sister was dying of cancer, so I used to go at the end of the afternoon, I, in the evening, I'd always go and sit in the hospital with her in the glamorous Lutman Dunsport Hospital. And um, so I, we didn't really get to go any further because I was never, you know, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, I was shooting the hospital and then coming back at 6, 7 in the morning. And it, obviously it looks like you've got something else going on with that. And I didn't want to tell her, you know, I hate this idea of, hey, we're having a great time. Oh, my God, my sister's dying, shit, man. And, you know, it all takes it to a different place. I love the idea of it just being, we played guitar together, we sang Irish rebel songs together, you know, we did lots of things. Anyway, my sister died, and then we got together. And so Tom, it wouldn't have happened. Tom and Mark were absolute um, game changers. Nathan Jones's favourite uh, phrase, game changer. They were the game changer. So, uh, so we got it together, and that was like, I don't know, 12 years ago or something. Wow. And, yeah. and her suggestion for your holiday last year? Well, she was 50 last year, you know, and um, she's not some, she's not materialistic. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, she likes food. Uh, she likes, you know, traveling. Uh, she likes doing things that are dangerous, um, you know, jumping at helicopters, all that stuff. Anyway, I, the only thing I, I can think of that, that, you know, I've grown up as a child always 
the, the one of the words and one of the places on the planet that has such awe connected to it is Everest. So, you know, I just had the idea of, of going to Everest. And, and we've been to Sardinia earlier that year. We did quite a bit of climbing, just trekking and climbing stuff and really enjoyed it. So the idea was to, to you know, take her. So on her 50th birthday, we'll be at Everest. We took our two sons with us who were um, nine and 13, which everyone said we shouldn't do, including some of the people from the Podge, if you remember. Yeah. We took them and it, it was a challenge, but, you know, we only went just, we went, we climbed Kalabatar, which is just above the, it's the mountain next to Everest, uh, just above base camp. You get a great view of Everest because from base camp, you don't see Everest. You've got sort of got to take a right, dog's leg, and then go, go uh, left and, and, you know, up three camps. Um, so yes, yeah, so we were there like on no two and a half weeks, but then we were. They had an abnormal snowfall one night, and we were in this large um, uh, Gorek Shep, which is the last chance loon before you actually. Well, it's by the Kumbu Glacier, so you're actually on Everest, but you're not sort of on the mountain. Anyway, the loads of avalanches and everything, and, and the Sherpas woke us up at two in the morning and said, "Look, you probably want to get out of here if you can, uh, or you're going to be stuck here for a week, and it's dangerous." So somehow, Keris, she's very resourceful, um, she managed to hire the last helicopter that was flying on Everest. We couldn't travel together because obviously we had the two, and if the helicopter went down, we'd all go down. So they didn't want to do that. So Keris went with one of our sons, and I went with the younger son. So the helicopter took her down, then come back and got myself and Red, and Catherine Nash, our friend, came with us. And I must say, Flying in snow when you're six feet off the ground for about an hour down the Kumbu Glacier is the most frightening thing I've ever done. And I don't want to do anything as frightening as that. Even going up against Mick Harford in his prime, I would, I would take that on willingly. So, but having said that, even though you've had the most frightening time of your life, um, when we got down, our legs were like rubber. Because eventually we joined in a bigger helicopter um, in the, the airport, the first airport uh, in before went on the way to Everest. They'd had a big crash there the day before. So the helicopter and the plane from the day before were still there, burnt out, and you're landing next to it. It's, you know, there's something attractive about these countries where life, well, it's not cheap, but they sort of, there's a spirit to life that danger is ever present, but you're brought up with it. So you don't, yeah. to them, it'd be like us crossing the M40 to get to a pub, you know. For us, it was these sort of wedge, ledges and, you know, um, sheer climbs and stuff. Anyway, so I would recommend it to anyone. And it sounds a bit of a, you know, a bit of a dangerous um, adventure. But actually, if you're sensible and if you're fit, and I say fit, you know, any age up to like we met someone who was 80, like the woman, the American woman was 80. Oh. It is the best holiday you can ever have because the air is great. The silence is phenomenal. You know, just the silence there. You don't hear that silence. You just don't hear it. Yeah. And the views are beyond belief. And on her 50th birthday, um, We've been promised to see Everest for four days, but it's got this um, cloud that's always spindrift, that's always around it, so you don't always see it. On her birthday, spindrift moved, and there was Everest. Oh, how lovely. Amazing. Yeah. The only good thing was that, well, the funny, there was an Indian troop that came up with us, uh, about 15 Indian chaps, and they were with us. Uh, you get to know people, you know, uh, on that trip up, um, and because you're with them, they're sharing one hole-in-the-ground toilet between 50 people, you know, there's a lot of... A lot of shared uh, experience. Um, yeah, so Loxie is the mountain next to Everest, and the Loxie face is the famous face that sort of faces uh, faces the peak. Um, anyway, the Indian guys were like, oh, you know, what's the mountain next door? And I said, oh, that's Farley Hill. 
uh, Farley Hill's the estate I grew up in Luton. So they're all taking pictures and, oh, Farley Hill, oh, Farley Hill. They're doing films, Farley Hill, Farley Hill. It was one of those small childish moments that you realise that schoolboy humour will never leave. And that was probably the highlight of my trip, thinking that they're going back to India with all these photos and films of what they think is Farley Hill, which is the council <laughs> they live by the one. Anyway. <laughs> um, the Podge events that you enjoy coming to, yeah. we used to always have them at the Arts Club. And I noticed on your CV that you're, you've got a role at the Arts Club. What, what is that role? Well, it's typical of the Arts Club. Um, they have a, a sort of a cultural ambassador, artistic, um, it's, it's an artistic board. And I think the idea was, um, I've been in and around the Arts Club for so long, uh, thanks to Brian Clivas uh, and you know, others that, that, that we know, um, that I'm, I suppose a bit of the furniture there. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a role that doesn't really mean anything, to be honest. I mean, we've had one meal and actually I do, I do interact with the booking team there, you know, when they want to get hold of someone or suggestions for people. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very, when we had the dinner, it's quite funny um, because it, 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 was, it was quite obvious that we hadn't met and we all came from different places. And I always think the best, the best boards or the best trustees or the best, groups uh where you have you know people from different backgrounds we were so far apart around that table from our backgrounds I thought it was absolutely brilliant anyway I sat next to Trevor Nelson you know good old Trev we have similar music tastes you know I like probably more on the reggae side and and soul and jazz and he's like soul and jazz and whatever I called it council house corner there wasn't anyone else at the table that understood what I meant (laughs) 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 I said oh this is council house corner they all look totally like I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, and, and now I found out he got an OB or CB or something, you know, on his name thing. Had, you know, so he's, he's sort of moved into that world now. You know, it's quite funny. Uh, but he's great, Trent. I mean, great DJ, but always good company. Very, very sharp. Um, but I think it showed that the club has moved from where it used to be, where it's like a drinking den for people loosely in the arts, to now it's moved to what we now know as like a wider group of people that just want a members club. But, but, you know, I did an interview for, for the club the other day and they're like, you know, what what makes a member of the arts club? You know, why is it special to belong to the arts club? What's And I said, well, actually, I think it's what we don't have in common that makes it special. You know, the arts club really is a group of people you know, that, that are so diverse and dispersed in cultural background, financial background, that it makes a really good club. Other clubs I go to, you're just mixing with all people from the same background, the same interest, you know. And it's a bit of a one-dimensional. Yeah. So I, I still love the Arts Club for that reason, that actually, without them realising this, because they wanted the opposite answer to the question, they've created this, you know, this hive of, of diversity. Yeah. So my favourite was sort of, also, I've got to mention Les Cargo, so I love Les Cargo. It's <laughs> still... Brian Clevers. Yeah, Brian Clevers, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the wonderful George, you know. I, I love hanging out there. Because since I'm a vegetarian, I've been for 35 years. There's only two things on the menu I can eat. But... Mm-hmm. There's plenty of wine to drink and, <laughs> and other things. But it's just the place is, is, you know, and it's sort of like they say, the, um, you know, the football team's only as good as the manager, an orchestra's conductor, party as good as the person whose party it is. I must say, Brian and George always throw the best parties, you know, just and it's, it's the day-to-day. I don't mean balloons and, yeah. and you know, um, getting hammered. I mean, just being in that building with them and what they do there is fantastic. And also, it's become not the nice to see, they've opened so it. But the Groucho is now back in my life. I've never been a member of the Groucho. 
till, till our mutual friend invited me to join. And I enjoy being there as well, you know. I'm seeing that really, I mean, that's that's come into its own, I think, the last few years. And So do I. I've got a question here for you that's like topical, really, current. But oh. there's a lot of people uh, through coronavirus that are having to change jobs. A lot of airline pilots and, you know, people in high-ranking jobs. Uh, you, you, in between jobs, you were a van driver or a lorry right, driver. Yeah. What, what mm. advice would you give the people who are just about to come on hard times? You know, they're, they're not going to have the opportunities they would, would have had in the past. Yeah, well, what, one thing that, that you know, it didn't, this didn't bug me for years. You know, I didn't go to university. You know, I left school when you leave school. Um, and... Okay, I got a job, a job as a van driver to save up money to do something. I don't know what I was doing, but saving money. And I started a music publishing company. And I signed this group, Casting Unstoppable, Unstoppable Sex Machine. <laughs> and uh, if you remember them. And I was lucky because I signed the right band. With the £2,000 I had, I signed a band, made a record, and boom, you know, it, it went from there. But it's, you know, I learned so many lessons from that job, particularly how to deal with people. Um, I was delivering office equipment. And, you know, you would climb... 10 floors with a desk, get it up there. You're there with a screwdriver and, and a few other sort of tools, which is, and, and the whole office is watching you. Like, I hope he scrapes that. We're going to send it back. You know, they all want, they all want something to go wrong, you know, and you're putting up these poorly made sort of uh, desks. So, you know, I learned that some people are good people. Some people are, are bad. Some people just judge you by what they're seeing, you know, this whole uh, meritocracy uh, thing, you know, and I think, the one thing that I really take from COVID as a positive is that we've realized the value of people without initials after name, without having been to university, you know, without what they wear or where they're from. And, and obviously it started with the NHS workers. But I think, you know, delivery people, um, you know, people who work in sanitation, uh, dustmen. I mean, these, I mean, they're experts at their job. You know, who's to say someone that's expert at studying a balance sheet and invested money in something to be worth more than someone that's emptying your trash every week? Yeah. And I think so. What it, I'm hoping that it not just brings a bigger appreciation to every to everybody in, in, in whatever role they're doing, but it also encourages people to understand that those jobs aren't demeaning. They may be uncomfortable. They may not be as comfortable as sitting in an office with a coffee machine and, you know, sort of a... a, a word processor but they have to be done and you know we all should be aware that it could be any of us doing that job at any time so i think you know this good advice job replacement thing it's it's you know or or changing career i mean it's been happening for years you know when i was a kid teachers used to build snooker tables in the summer or something they had all that time off you know Uh, um you know people used to do two or three different things you know every parent had to be a handy person because you couldn't hire someone to come in and put a shelf up or decorate house you have to do it yourself you know so um yeah so i, I think i think we've got to be prepared to do what we've got to do and it's very sad but I, i'm hoping it'll actually in the longer term turn into a a, a world where we're less uh, we're more giving to people whatever they do especially people that really contribute you know, that without them, our whole society would fall apart. And I think if children see that, I hope that schools and education pick this up as a, as a theme to make sure kids know, particularly privileged children, uh, which are still more and more, um, that they know that these people are as important as they think they'll ever be. Um, and they, they should never look down on you. Amazing. I've just got a couple, I mean, I could listen to you all day, Steve. You've got so many incredible stories. Oh, and so- you'll be sleeping. 
<laughs> so much depth to them as well. I think is you know this is the point of the wonderful people podcast is to just people to share their life stories and just along that theme, I suppose what was the last thing that you that you saw where you really thought, you know what, that's wonderful. Um, mm, that's a good question. You know, when when lockdown started, it seemed around this area that care in the community almost fell apart. You know, there seemed a lot of people out in the streets that, that, you know, needed some sort of support. And, you know, we live in a strong community here, like I say around here. It's, it's, it's so heartwarming. You know, I regularly see things that, you know, people that are down on their luck talking to school children, school children talking to people that are down on their luck, you know. You know, I, I saw a few things around early lockdown where I saw people at the time where we weren't supposed to wear masks, you know, people without masks, guiding people, you know, sort of that, that looked lost. And there wasn't one in particular, but it seemed to be, it was almost like someone was trying to tell me that I need to do more to do that. Because, you know, people with mental illness can be very scary, especially on the streets, especially if you've got kids with you. And you see people do a wide berth around them. Often, they're just looking for someone to talk to. And, you know, I think that, that yeah, I, I was touched to almost tears on Portobello Road. Uh, and this was about three weeks into lockdown by a couple of things I saw there. Um, and I was just out for a walk just to get a bit of air, you know. Um, yeah, so, so that was it, really. I mean, there's many, many things I've seen in my life have been touching. Jeez, you know, it, I think the sacrifice of parents, I think that is an incredibly touching thing that, um, you know, we know the kids are really going to appreciate it. But, you know, you know, being a single parent, being a parent with a disability, being a child that's a carer, I'm this, oh, geez, it's, there's so many situations where people find a strength to um, surpass what most people are expected to be asked of in the day-to-day. Yeah, amazing, absolutely true. I suppose, you know, this last question, I suppose, for me, alongside that theme, you know, one of the things, like as an agency, we try and take our clients or sort of complex problems, whether they be mm. technology or marketing, and try and give them a simple solution because life is complex. And you've seen a lot of life in very many different locations and environments. What's one thing, one complex thing you'd like to see made simpler? Oh, um, any form that you have to fill in for the government or council or, <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. I would love to see, I'd love to see a simpler way to bring up children without them being, without the allure of games and the great minds that are now used to create an addiction in children, you know, that they, they live or die, you know, everything else is worthless, it just being in that game, in that game. And I take the point that, you know, this is the way, especially through COVID, of, of uh, children socialising with their school friends. But it's addictive, and it's deeply addictive. And it's, you know, as a parent, you're not just up against your own child getting them off, you're up against all those great minds that know exactly what buttons to push, how to present something, and how to um, draw in uh, children's minds that should be you know, like the writer Michael Mapurgo, he has a farm that children go to, you know, and they just learn about the farm and animals and stuff. It sounds so naive and simple, but it's it's heartwarming. And, you know, I do believe that, that, that a connection with nature, when nature gets inside you, again, it's a lifelong warmth it brings you. Um, and we're losing that to these addictive 
you know, screen obsessive uh, lifestyles that we're allowing our children to go on to. Agreed. I can vouch for that. It's absolutely brilliant. Hopefully none of your clients. <laughs> <laughs> Only work with gaming companies, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to ask you one last thing, and it's that should have been the last question, but um, my daughter works with me, as you know, with projects. Mm. Your son works yeah. with you in your business. What? Yeah. Having, having a member of your family as part of your team in your business, how does, it, how does that feel? I, I think it's brilliant. I actually was inspired by yourself uh, and Babs and, and also another friend who had their uh, son working for them because I'd always thought it would be poisonous for them, you know, and especially in the entertainment business because when I sort of came into the business, I've never really been in the business. I'm always floating around the outside. I've always... I've always come up against people that had an entitlement to, to take jobs, failing upwards or just being stuck in job because they're related to someone. So my worry is always the damage you do to them. But what I love about it is obviously the trust, the understanding. But most importantly, I think it's the fact that you get to spend so much time with your family in a world where we're, you know, whether they leave school at 16 or, or well, the minute they leave home, that bond is like a few hours at a weekend or a phone call or nowadays a Zoom. When you spend that much time with people that, that really are from you, that you can, you, you know, they are probably more prone to make mistakes you, you've made or have the nervous tics or whatever, <laughs> or, or, you know, stomach problems or whatever. You know, you can, you can without saying Patrick, you can really bond together on that common interest. Yeah. But most importantly, spend the time together. I think that is, that's priceless. I, would, I wish we, you know, I would swap everything I do to have a flower stall where all of us work together all down that stall. I would love that. <laughs> a, because it's nature, it smells great, you have a good repartee going on, and, you know, perhaps you go home to your own homes, but spending time with family is priceless. Yeah, Steve, that was absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. Really, really thank you for that. Well, great talking to you, and see you at the pod show, Philip. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.